Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the, the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He then who provides you with the Spirit and work miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? I know you've noticed the difference between fresh converts, rookies, and us old veteran Christians. I love to be around uh, new Christians. Now, they have this unmistakable joy and spontaneity and zeal, enthusiasm, and an urge to uh, share Christ with others. I'm talking about the norm or the, uh, the majority. And you can't look at new converts, fresh Christians, rookies, and then look at this vast number of the rest of us veterans and not see a tremendous difference. Most of us, you know, were saved gloriously, but it's been downhill ever since. Somebody said that a good definition of progress is working as hard as you can just to get things to be as good as they used to be. Now you, you apply that to your spiritual life. Now most of us working it working just as hard as we can to get it to be as good as it used to be. And most of us are not having much luck because we started out, you know, gloriously saved. And most of us are living on a lower note now than we were when we first started out. It's nothing new. The Apostle Paul in the first century found that among the Galatians. And he says in the first chapter, I am astounded that you're so soon betraying the one who called you out, called you by his grace. And he comes to this third chapter and he, with strong language, as a matter of fact, the J.B. Phillips translation has it, you stupid idiots. Now you think I'm kind of direct. Next time you feel that way, you remember what Paul said, you stupid idiots. Who has bewitched you? Who's hypnotized you? It's a picture of somebody that's been put under a spell, under a trance, cast under a spell by an evil eye, like Mammy Yoakum used to do, you know, and, and little Abner, put them under a whammy. He said, who's put you under this spell, this evil, evil eye? Who has bewitched you? Well, what's going on there in, in Galatia? Well, I think verse 3 gives us a little window into what is happening, and he asks this simple question, Having begun in the Spirit or by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? That is, are you now trying to reach the goal of your Christian life by human effort? And what had happened was this. The people in Galatia had started out in the Christian life supernaturally. They were trying to live the Christian life naturally. They started out in the Christian life 
by the miracle of the new birth, the miraculous work of the Spirit of God, but they were trying to reach the goal of the Christian life, that is, spiritual maturity, by human effort, by works of the flesh. But these Judaizers had come in and said to them, Sure, you were saved by grace and the miracle of the new birth, but now, in order to live out your Christian life, you're going to have to regiment yourself to certain rules, restrictions, and requirements. Sounds like some of us. I think many of us believe that we're just, you know, really orthodox in how we get saved. We're right down the line theologically. We know that we are saved by the miracle of the new birth, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But most of us think that the way we keep ourselves saved and the way we reach the goal of spiritual maturity is by human effort. It says... Um, who has bewitched you? Have you ever been hypnotized? I was listening to a talk show the other day and this guy was talking about how to hypnotize people. He said anybody can be hypnotized. You don't have to be, you know, smart or dumb. You can be hypnotized. He said in order to be hypnotized, you've got to take your attention, your uh, eye away from everything and focus total attention on the one who is hypnotizing you and the method he's using. Maybe with his eye or, you know, he swings a watch or whatever. He said, you got to take your eye off of everything else and focus that concentration entirely on that point. What had happened in Galatia was what happens here. Is that their eyes were devoted from primary things. Now, there are two primary doctrines in the book of Galatians. The meaning, the message, and the meaning of the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now what had happened was this. They had taken their eyes off of the meaning, the message of the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they put them somewhere else. They put their eyes somewhere else and it was downhill after that. Two things were happening. That's what I want to talk about this morning. First of all, there was a failure to appreciate the meaning or the message of the cross. A failure of appreciation of the meaning or message of the cross. Let me say that positively. How to get things as good as it used to be is a proper appreciation of the meaning or the message of the cross. He said, you of all people have taken your eyes off the cross. You of all people. Or he said, Christ has been evidently set forth crucified among you. The word set forth is the word prographe in the Greek. It means to placard or to billboard. And when some special event was going to take place in a town, a herald would run to that town, and in the center of the town he'd put in a, on a big billboard so that everybody could see it, the, the announcement of the event. It was called prographeing. It was the prographe of the event. He said, by my preaching and my teaching... It was as if you were there when he was crucified. It was as if you saw them drive the nails in his hands and push the crown into his, of thorns into his skull. It was as if you were there when they thrust the spear into his side. And you've taken your eyes off of that. For as long as I rivet my eyes, my attention on the cross, I am safe. Take them away and it's downhill. G.G. Finley puts it like this. He said, Let the cross of Christ once lose its spell over you 
let its influence fail to hold and rule your soul and you'll be subject to every wind of doctrine. You'll be like sailors in a dark night on a perilous shore who have lost sight of the beacon light and your Christianity will go to pieces. They had taken the eyes off the cross and its message. Now what is the meaning and the message of the cross? If you could capsulize the message of the cross, you could put it in five words, two messages of five words. You could put a sign above the cross. It'd be two signs. One of them would put, one of them would say, you can't. The message of the cross is you can't. You can't gain the approval of a righteous God. You can't meet the demands of the holy God. You can't live the Christian life. You can't. You can't because of the weakness of human flesh. You couldn't do it if you wanted to. The Apostle Paul wanted to. He said, the things that I want to do, the things that I don't do. He said, the things that I say that I never will do, that, I, that absolutely repel me, are the very things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. You ever been out shoveling in deep, in, in hard soil, and you drive the spade down in the into the soil and you start working it trying to lift that soil out and all of a sudden the handle breaks because the handle's made out of wood. The spade may be willing but the handle is weak. You know, the, the, the spirit is willing but the, but the flesh is weak. You can't do it if you want to because of the weakness of the flesh and because of the exceeding sinfulness of, the human, of human flesh. Now, now listen to me. If you could keep every... Demand of the law, if you could submit yourself to every requirement of ritual and religion, God still wouldn't accept it. Because there is something inherent, inherently sinful or, or wicked about human flesh. I don't want to be misunderstood, but I believe this deeply. That the greatest sin you could ever commit is to try to serve God in the flesh. The devil is cunning, he's wise. If he can't get you to deny God, he'll get you to serve God in human flesh. And it's just not possible. You can't. The second message on the top of the cross would be, I have already. It means that when Jesus cried, it is finished, it meant that he had already done everything necessary for your salvation. He did everything necessary to save you and to keep you saved. I need to say that again. When Jesus cried, it is finished on the cross, He meant that everything necessary to get you saved and to keep you saved was already accomplished. Now the human tendency is to quit before you get to the end, is to stop before you get to the finish line. And that human tendency has seen never a little minor thing in life, a half-mowed lawn, a, an unfinished book, a, a half-written letter, an abandoned diet. It's seen in the most serious matters of life, a wrecked marriage, an unevangelized world. Human tendency is to quit before we finish. But Jesus didn't. You think He wanted to? Of course He did. That's what made those words, it is finished so glorious. Listen to me. Listen for a moment and consider that day he was crucified. The thieves on beside him are moaning. The jeering has stopped. There is darkness as that cross sways on that lonely hill. Maybe there is 
weeping, maybe there is thunder, maybe there is silence. And all of a sudden Jesus pushes himself up on that Roman nail through his feet and gasps, gathers a breath and cries, it is finished. What was finished? The history-long plan of redeeming man was finished. The message of God to man was finished. The works of Jesus on earth was finished. The song was sung. The blood had been poured. The sacrifice had been made. The sting of death had been removed. It was over. Was it a cry of defeat? Hardly. It's not a cry of despair. It's a cry of completion, a cry of victory, a cry of, a cry of fulfillment. All that was necessary to save you and keep you saved is finished. Now what you and I do is that we look back on the cross as an event that happened 2,000 years ago. It's interesting that in the very first, first verse of this passage, that phrase, was crucified, was crucified. That's a perfect participle. If you know anything about basic New Testament Greek, you'll know that a perfect participle, its characteristic is that which is an action which happened in the past, spans time, and embraces the present. Now watch what that means. It means that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, He's still doing. It means that He not only was crucified, He is the crucified Savior so that we don't look back to the cross just for our salvation. We look back to the cross for our sanctification. And what those wounds meant and what those wounds did 2,000 years ago are still doing now. That's why when Jesus was raised and received His glorified body, glorified in the sense that He wasn't limited by time or space, He could appear and disappear, He could walk through walls, when he received his glorified body, he still had the marks of the nails in his hands. You and I want. It didn't dawn on me until not long ago. When I was reading the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, it just dawned on me that Jesus is the only one who has the marks of the old life in his resurrected body. We won't have those scars. If we're blind in this life, we won't be blind there. If we're lame here, we won't be lame there. If we're scarred here, we won't have scars there. But he did. John, when God gave him that revelation on, on Patmos, said, I saw the Lamb as it had been slain. How are we going to recognize Jesus? Well, just look for the one who has scars in his hands. He'll be the only one who has the marks of the old life in his body. Now, why? Well, the answer is easy. Because what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and the wounds that brought about, that paid for our salvation, those wounds, those scars, that price extends on out into eternity. That's why I must believe in once saved, always saved. For what Jesus did there, He continues to do. And He bears those marks. And that's what John meant when he said that the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from sin. John Jasper was born in 1812. His parents were slaves. He was the son of a slave in Richmond, Virginia, a black man. He was one of 24 kids. Mercy, wouldn't you love it? Have 24 kids. One of 24 kids. 
John Jasper was gloriously saved. He became this eloquent black preacher that everybody wanted to hear, born in 1812. So his preaching took place in the mid-1800s. They flocked to the black people to hear him preach. They even stood outside, standing room only, just to hear him preach a funeral sermon. He was eloquent. I wish I could preach like him. He said in the black vernacular, when I get to heaven, I'm going to rattle the pearly gates. And boss Peter is going to come and say, what's an old black sinner doing like you, like you doing up here? And he said, I'm going to say, I don't know, boss Peter. All I know is the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing me from sin. And what happened when I was saved, what happened when he died on the cross for me, continues to avail for me throughout eternity. If you, listen to me, if you believe that after having been saved, you have to be resaved, it means that the cross is not enough. A proper appreciation of the cross. Secondly, there was lack of appropriation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now let me put it in a positive way. The way to make things as good as they used to be is a daily appropriation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul said in verse 2, he said, I can settle this issue of the nature of the Christian life with one question. He was a tremendous debater. Uh, C.W. Mangrove used to have champion debate teams at Southeastern. I, I mentioned in the early service this morning, if Paul had been, uh, he, he could have been on one of his champion debate teams. He had a tremendous ability to use logic. He was a great debater. The Apostle Paul said, I can settle this question about the nature of the Christian life with one, I can settle this matter with one question. And the question is this, received you the Spirit by the works of flesh or by hearing with faith? Just tell me how you got saved, he said. How'd you get saved? Because how one, notice the emphasis on the end and the beginning, because how one begins is how one ends. You don't change natures in midspring. The nature of an apple tree is determined by the seed from which it sprang. So if a tree springs from an apple seed, it's going to be an apple, seed, apple tree from then on. A cow is a cow is a cow. So if an animal was born from the seed of a cow, it's going to be a cow to the end. It's not going to change. How did you get saved? Well, the obvious answer the, the Apostle Paul is looking for, he just moves in to, to verse 3 because he knows the answer to that. The way you get saved is by the regenerating new birth work of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you continue the Christian life? And how does it come to perfection? How does it reach its goal? By the work of the same Holy Spirit. I love it. Now, two things. The Christian life begins with a reception of the Holy Spirit. I think one of the simplest answers, what is a Christian, is this. A Christian is somebody who has received the Holy Spirit. For the Christian life begins with a reception of the Holy Spirit. How, he said, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did you start out? Well, the Christian life begins with a reception of the Holy Spirit. That means that the Christian life is spiritual and not mechanical. And I think one of the most tragic things that's happened in modern denominational Christianity is 
we have made the Christian life mechanical. In other words, we get people down the aisle and we introduce them to the church and we introduce them to the requirements and to baptism, etc. That's not Christianity. Christianity does not begin when we accept the injunction to live a certain way. Christianity begins with the impartation of life, His life, eternal life, that we just heard in the beautiful song. It is spiritual and not mechanical. And it comes about as His gracious gift. Now I know some of you are wondering, now I've been preaching in Galatians now for four Sundays, why are you laboring that point? Well, the reason I'm laboring is this, is because the way you get saved is the way you live the Christian life. How do you get saved? It's by His gift. Well, how does victory come? It comes as a gift. It comes as a gift. And so after Paul cried, who will deliver me from this Bondage of death, O wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God, he said. The victory is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes as a gift. And that tells us what the needs of this life are. This life needs nourishment. Now if this life, this Christian life, is spiritual and not mechanical, how is this life nourished? It's nourished by spirit. Spirit, only spirit can nourish spirit. Now some of you think... That the way you nourish the spiritual life is to come to church once or twice a month. You're terribly undernourished. And, and I'm going to come to church and I'm going to listen to everything that's preached from the pulpit and that's the way I get my spiritual nourishment. That, you, you, you're starving yourself to death. It's in His Word. Jesus said, My Word is spirit and life. And unless you're in His Word, you're starved spiritually. And Psalm 1 describes this spiritually prosperous man. Everything he does prosperous. He's this live, live wire, this, this healthy man. He says, it's because, he said, your law is my delight. I meditate in it day and night. And he's like a tree planted by waters. This life must be nourished by his word. And when you're physically undernourished, you're subject to every wind of doctrine, every disease that comes along. And if you're spiritually undernourished, you're subject to every, every doubt, every wind of doctrine. All right? The Christian life begins, what's this, with the reception of the Holy Spirit. Notice that the Christian life continues and is per perfected by appropriation of the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to get it, hang in here with me. Watch this. He says, does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you? That term there, that word provides you with the Spirit is, refers to these choirs that went around the country during Paul's day, choruses. And they would have these dramas and these paid choruses were there to be a part of the drama. And the way those choruses were underwritten was by some wealthy benefactor. And he paid the entire bill. And they go around the country and this wealthy benefactor would pick up the tab, pick up the ticket. The Apostle Paul says that God, watch this, provides. He's the wealthy benefactor that provides the Holy Spirit for every resource, for every need of your life. I love that. He said, He's the one who lavishes His Holy Spirit upon you. And that Holy Spirit is a resource for every need you have. No wonder Jesus taught us 
If your son asks you for bread, will you give him a stone? If he asks you for fish, will you give him a serpent? If you, being evil, know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask of Him? You know what he's saying? He's saying that when He gives you that Holy Spirit, lavishing Him him upon you, He's given you a resource for every need you have. And the one who provides this Holy Spirit and the one who works miracles among you. That's the next phrase. And they go together. Now watch this. He's saying that when you have the Holy Spirit given you, He is in you to do the supernatural in you. So that the Christian life is just doing what comes supernaturally. You can't live the Christian life. You can't meet the demands of a holy God. You can't gain the approval of a righteous creator, but the Holy Spirit is lavished upon you that through Him you may see supernatural things accomplished. And that's what the Christian life is. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Now he says, how does that happen? Does that come by human effort? No, he says, it comes by the hearing with faith. And that means that it happens when I daily Declare my dependence upon God. Now when you came to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you came to be saved, you just came to depend on God for that. The Apostle Paul said, now this is the way you reach the goal of spiritual maturity. This is the way you reach the goal of spiritual vitality and perfection. It's just by the daily, daily dependence upon God to do His supernatural work in you. Ian Thomas has a saying we used to quote around here a lot. I can't, and you never said I could. You can, and you always said you would. Uh, You want to say it with me? I can't, and you never said I could. You can, and you always said you would. That's the message of the cross. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. C.E. Maxwell, who who recently passed away, was the president of Prayer Bible Institute, a Bible school up in central Canada. I visited that place one time. C.E. Maxwell told about this young Canadian uh, athlete, a swimmer, a diver, in, in, in one of the Canadian colleges, raised in a Christian home in Canada, godly parents, went away to college and got with the wrong crowd, drifted away from God, brought shame to himself, to his family, to his Lord. He got in deep depression. He was despondent. One night he decided he'd go over to the swimming facility, enclosed place, in a large gym, he had access to it. Went in there, it was late at night, thought, I'll swim a few laps, maybe I can sleep better. He couldn't sleep. He went around, he climbed up on the high platform, was getting ready to dive in. He stretched out his hands for the dive, and then he noticed that it was a moonlit night, and the light coming in from the window made a silhouette of a cross across the way and on the wall to his left. He was mesmerized by it the shadow of the cross. He remembered how he started. 
when he was just a little boy. The preacher was talking about the cross of Jesus. Broke his heart. He gave his life to Christ. He remembered how he started out. He realized what he was. He stood there mesmerized before the shadow of the cross. He decided he'd leave, go home, go to his dorm, get into his Bible, get on his knees, see if he couldn't get back to where he was. So he climbed down from the platform, started to leave. Noticed for the first time, the pool was empty. They had drained the pool that day to clean it. Had he went ahead with his dive, he would have killed himself. Saved, kept by the cross. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me and help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever till this ransom soul shall find rest beyond the river. Have you taken your eyes off of the cross? Have you taken your life away from the ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's been downhill. It's been downhill. In a moment we're going to pray and then we're going to give invitation. We're going to sing this old hymn, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat this morning, out of the balcony, and out of the choir, and out of this auditorium, and come claiming what He did for you at Calvary. If you're lost, my plea this morning is, by the mercies of God, that you come claiming that for yourself. His death, His price, His work for you. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat in a moment, you who are Christians who have taken your eyes away. You've been put under the spell. You've been trying to live for God. It's the most exhausting, damning, heartbreaking, disappointing thing in life to try to serve the Lord in human effort. You're unhappy. You've brought disgrace to God and to yourself. You want to come back to Him. I want you to come this morning and join this church. Serve the God of the cross with these people who follow Him. After we've prayed, we'll just stand quietly then we'll ask you to come. Join me in prayer. Father, in the spirit of this moment, in the urging of the Holy Spirit, and by the accomplishment of Jesus Christ at Calvary, you have said that if you be lifted up, you'll draw all men to you. In these last weeks, Father, we've sought to do that, to hold him up, to lift, lift you up, Jesus. Now would you draw unto you professing believers, repenting Christians, surrendered disciples. Draw, Lord, an army of people to you. A following of you to you, I pray, in the name of Jesus and for his sake. In a spirit of prayer, stand. Come this morning. College students, come today. Christians, come today. Lost people, come now while we sing.